Welcome to Cars Yeah, show number 100. This is Cars Yeah, where you'll enjoy interviews with inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Mark Green is here to provide you with a fuel injection of automotive inspiration. So get in, sit down, buckle up, and get ready for a wild ride here on Cars Yeah. Have you turned your key and heard that dreaded tick, 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 tick because of a dead battery? No worries. I've got the NOCO Genius Boost Jump Starter. This compact tool fits in your glove box and features rechargeable lithium battery technology that will start a dead battery in your car, boat, truck, or RV. It packs a whopping 12-volt, 400-amp starting power and can start up to 20 dead batteries on a single charge. Plus, it has built-in spark-proof technology with reverse polarity protection to safely jumpstart your vehicle. The compact, ergonomically designed clamps are solid copper for maximum conductivity, and there's a built-in ultra-bright dual LED flashlight with seven modes, including an SOS emergency strobe. It's easily rechargeable with a USB outlet, and you can charge your smartphone or tablet while you're on the road. Works on any 12-volt lead-acid battery. The Genius Boost from NOCO is the ultimate emergency tool that's safe and easy to use. Quality design, state-of-the-art technology from NOCO, your battery care source since 1914. Get yours at GeniusChargers.com. Hello, automotive enthusiasts. Today, I'm really excited to introduce a very special guest, Magnus Walker. Magnus, are you buckled up and ready for a fun ride? I'm buckled up, ready to go pedal to the metal. So uh, let's get out on the open road and see where this journey takes us. All right. It is so wonderful to have you here. This show marks the 100th episode of Cars Yeah, and I couldn't think of a more perfect automotive entrepreneur than to share this milestone with Magnus Walker. Magnus's love with Porsche began when he was just 10 years old during a trip to the 1977 London Motor Show. And after that experience, he wrote the Porsche factory a letter And their response was, give us a call when you're older. You know what? He did, but more on that later. In 1986, at the age of 19, he moved to L.A. and started his own clothing line. And that led to the acquisition of a warehouse in downtown L.A., his first Porsche, Porsche club racing, and his ever-expanding collection of vintage Porsches, which he often customizes into his outlaw style. His build started gaining attention, And when he produced the video Urban Outlaw, things really got accelerated. Magnus is not your stereotypical Porsche driver, and there's nothing typical about Magnus. He has an online Urban Outlaw store, a blog, a website, videos. He's been a speaker on TED Talks, and he travels all over the world, driving Porsches and expanding his reach to fans everywhere. You never know where Magnus will go next. So Magnus, I've told our listeners just a little bit about your fascinating life. Could you take a few moments and share some time? and history about your career, your business, your interests, and, of course, your passion for Porsche automobiles. Sure, Mark. Well, first of all, I want to congratulate you on uh, 100 uh, episodes of your show. That's really, really pretty impressive. Apparently, uh, you've done that in uh, the past four months. And, yeah. Uh, sounds to me like you've uh, followed your own gut feeling and done something uh, that you'd love to do and are passionate about. And I always say passion goes a long, long way. I'm a guy that has a passion for Porsche, and uh, sounds to me like you also have a passion for cars. You know, I always say Porsche's a language. doesn't matter whether you speak English, German, or Japanese. You know, people can relate to the car, you know, without the language. And I think all car guys uh, share the same passion for the sort of the need for speed and the 
uh, individuality that you can bring to whatever your car of choice is. Obviously, Porsche is my drug of choice. You know, I describe Porsche as a little bit of a uh, drug addiction or a religious experience, depending, uh, you know, which <laughs> sort of side of the tracks you come from. Absolutely. As you uh, said earlier on in the intro, sounds like you've done a little bit of background history on me. You know, I grew up in Sheffield. I was born in 1967, so by my math, that makes me to today, what is that, 47? Yeah. But, you know, my love affair, like you said, with Porsche started as a 10-year-old when my father took me to the London Olds Court Motor Show. And Porsche, to me, back then, just was a dream. You know, growing up as a kid in the northern town of Sheffield, I always say this, but it's true, Porsches were not a common sight on the road. You know, it wasn't an affluent area and uh, as a kid, that dream started as a 10-year-old. I had the poster on the wall, I suppose. Any kid growing up anywhere in the world in the late 70s, early 80s, chances are you had a choice of three posters that might be hanging on your bedroom wall. One would be a Porsche Turbo, possibly a Lamborghini Countach, and probably a Ferrari 512 Boxer. Yeah, I had all three. <laughs> yeah, for some reason I clicked with Porsche. I don't quite know why. But uh, I did write that letter to Porsche, and back then in the 70s, Porsche was a different company to what they are today. They actually did write me a letter back saying, call us when you're older, along with the sales brochure. And I never gave up on that dream, you know, of owning a Porsche one day. It took me another 12 years until I was 22 when I bought my first Porsche. And that really represented, you know, a real sense of achievement for me and a real sense of sort of uh, personal freedom that a dream I had as a young kid that I'd never given up on finally came true. And I, I think that dream happened for me by coming to America at an early age when I was 19. You know, for those of you that have sort of maybe seen my TED Talk or some of my blogs, you'll, my story may be familiar, but for those of you that are not familiar with it, I, I left school at 15. I was into rock and roll. America beckoned, I like to describe it as sex, drugs, and rock and roll. <laughs> but ultimately, America to me represented freedom. You know, and I flew to New York and took a trailways bus from New York to Detroit to spend the summer working on a summer camp in 1986 when I was 19, and then uh, worked the summer and then took a, uh, another trailways bus from Detroit to L.A. And that sort of opened my eyes to what I call Americana, and that was my sort of first great American road trip. Even though I wasn't driving, it was, uh, you know, coming from Sheffield, England to America, it was just such a vast land of opportunity. And as a kid growing up, you know, we were obviously used to American TV. And, you know, I loved the uh, American TV shows, Dukes of Hazard and Chips and Starsky and Hutch. And a lot of these shows revolved around cars, you know, American cars for the most part. But, uh, sure. you know, I sort of had that love affair with all things Americana. It wasn't just sex, drugs, and rock and roll. It was the automobile. And, you know, for me, it was sort of, I suppose, in a way, at the time, I didn't realize, but looking back, somewhat of this organic thing that I ended up in Detroit, you know, obviously the birthplace of uh, the American motor car. Yeah, absolutely. And Detroit in the 80s was, uh, you know, sort of a really different environment to Sheffield, England. But in a sense, they were both industrial towns that were sort of on the decline, you know, so there were similarities there, gritty working-class towns. So I always sort of had this connection with Detroit. You know, it goes beyond just the automobile. But it's a city I'd actually love to revisit and shoot some Porsche activity in the streets of Detroit. That's something that's uh, now on my wish list of things to do. Uh, very cool. So anyway, you know, over the past, uh, I suppose, what is it, over 20 years, I've owned quite a few 911s. And people always say to me, what is it about 911s? as opposed to other cars, and 
there's no real one answer, but there's a few that I like to talk about. You know, in a sense, Porsche was the relatable car. It was the, you know, the affordable car for the most part, especially back then. It was a car that was easy to uh, adapt, to customize, to personalize. You know, a lot of the first 25 years of the 911 are all interchangeable, you know, with mild modifications. So, you know, on one hand, it's easy to update and hot rod a 911, but on the other hand, it also makes finding a original car that hasn't been molested somewhat difficult but uh i like variety so my collection's mostly made up of you know porsches from 64 through 73 and then recently i caught a dose of what i like to describe as turbo fever you know, that was <laughs> the car that started my love affair with porsche you know back in 1977 and uh, i like to collect the beginning of things you know hence the 64 which was the first year of the 911 as you know the 911 celebrated its 50th anniversary you know, the only other two cars that have been in constant production longer are the Corvette and then obviously the Mustang, which pretty much debuted the same time in 1964. Yeah. But, you know, the DNA of the 911 is still there. It's constantly sort of evolved over the past 50 years, but the soul is, of the car is still there. You know, that's not necessarily something you can say about the first Corvette. It doesn't really resemble the Corvette today. No, no. Even though the Corvette of today, I think, is a real, you know, Real great car, lots of bang for the buck there, but, you know, I just sort of became this Porsche guy. Over the years, I'd owned, you know, at one time I owned a 65 uh, GT350 R-inspired Mustang with a 351 Cleveland and a Richmond 5-speed and a Detroit locker. I also had a 67 E-type Jag, two 69 Super Bs. One was a F8 metallic green, that was a 383 4-speed, and then a black 440 I owned a 73 Lotus Europa Twin Cam and oh. also a 79 308 GTB Ferrari, along with two or three Porsches all at the same time. Oh, so gee. probably 20 years ago, my collection was not purely focused on Porsche. It was sort of what I like to call American muscle cars and European sports cars. You know, and those were all cars that I sort of had a connection to. But it was interesting. Uh, every one of those cars was sort of good at one or two things. You know, for example, you know, the uh, E-Type Jag was a great cruiser. And the Super B would basically take anything in a straight line up to 60 miles an hour or 80 miles an hour. The Mustang was a little bit better than the, Must, uh, than the Super B in the fact that it would sort of corner and handle pretty well. Sure. The Lotus Europa, for example, was super nimble but underpowered. And then the 308 GTB was sort of an entertaining drive, but outside of the 911, those cars sort of were good at maybe one or two things, but... The 911 seemed to excel at multiple things. You know, it seemed to be the everyday practical supercar, you know, that you could sort of nimble around town in traffic quite easily or go out to your favorite road and get lost and, uh, you know, go as fast as you wanted to go. It was a practical sports car. So oh, yeah. a little over the past 10 years, I got rid of everything that wasn't a Porsche 911. And uh, that's sort of my story, you know, revolving Porsches and other cars and, how I came to America and uh, fell in love with America. And to me, America was the land of opportunity. You know, I left uh, Sheffield, England when I was 19 years old, and I never really had a proper job there, lived at home with my parents. So America represented two things. One, it was freedom to do whatever you want to do without someone telling you no. <laughs> and two, it was also sort of how I matured and learned responsibility of, you know, looking after yourself, getting a bank account, a job, but still never giving up on my sort of adventurous spirit of doing things my way, you know, not sort of uh, 
curtailing down of someone's idea of what life should be, and that really was a great thing about coming to America. I don't think I would have... I wouldn't be where I am today if I hadn't come to America at an early age. That really was a a bold move for me as a teenager, not knowing anyone here. But back then, you know, you sort of got this uh, how-bad-can-it-be attitude of, you know, they speak English, the weather's great, and, you know, it's better than Sheffield. And 28 years later, I still sort of feel the same way. I love your story in so many ways, Magnus, because uh, here at Cars Yeah, we're about inspiring automotive enthusiasts and entrepreneurship. And you are a entrepreneur at heart with all the different things that you've gotten involved with since you've come to America. And the fact that you got involved with cars and it's evolved into a real big car thing for you is what was so exciting for me about having you on the show. And one of the things we do here is we talk about a success quote or a mantra, some kind of a saying or something that has some meaning to you. Is there a saying in your life? You know, you're a great storyteller and I love all the stories that you tell. Is there some kind of an inspirational saying that has some meaning to you in your life? Well, I've got a few. So it depends how much time you've got. I love the dirt don't slow you down because that's sort of, you know, I've never been a concourse show car type of guy, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, waxing Q-tips to me. You don't make the car drive any better. They may, you know, make the car look prettier and shinier. But one of my slogans is dirt don't slow you down. (laughs) The other one is uh, pedal to the metal. But I suppose, uh, you know, my favorite one is, I sort of touched on it with the TED Talk, and, you know, it's been a roller coaster ride for me over the past two years since uh, Tamir Moscovici's film Urban Outlaw came out, and I want to touch base on how that's changed my life a little bit. Yes. To answer your question, the one I really like is Go With Your Gut Feeling. You know, Mm. a lot of people found that film Urban Outlaw inspiring because it's not purely a Porsche film. It's the story of my life coming to America as a teenager and sort of, making my dream come true. And it always revolves around sort of going with your gut feeling. And, you know, this has happened to me quite a few times. You know, the common bond between the three things I've done in the 28 years I've been in L.A. are really uh, just following your gut feeling and doing things that feel right and things that I'm interested in, regardless of what other people think. And when I first came to America, I bummed around for a few years going to clubs and sort of got that sex, drugs, rock and roll side out of me a little bit. And then accidentally in 1989, 1990, started a second-hand clothing business on the boardwalk in Venice Beach. And that story I've told it quite a few times, but, you know, the common bond there was I had no fashion background. I didn't go to fashion school to learn fashion, but as a kid, you know, I was a headbanger listening to heavy metal bands from the age of probably 14 all the way for the past, I guess, uh, 33 years. I never gave up on that love of heavy metal music and that lifestyle, but it had its own style. And so, you know, I sort of randomly fell into the clothing business and started started selling secondhand clothing on the boardwalk, items that I'd go find at thrift stores, you know, for 50 cents or a dollar, and sort of reinterpreted them. You know, I'd take these old Levi 501 jeans and uh, remanufacture them by putting patches on them, and uh, that led me down the path of the clothing business, which became somewhat successful if you're into rock and roll in the mid-90s to the early 2000s. You know, we outfitted everyone from Alice Cooper to Madonna. And All right. But through this business, from a little stall on the boardwalk to selling a chain called Hot Topic that had over 700 retail outlets and forming our own retail store and doing a lot of wholesale. And that opened the door to sort of uh, acquiring our own building in downtown L.A. in 2000. Now... The point to this story is the three things that I've done, clothing, building, property renovation, and Porsches, they all share a same common bond, and 
that common bond really is a stylistic signature in a sense. Serious Clothing had its own luck. The buildings that we've owned and turned into film location businesses purely by accident had their own unique style. We accidentally fell into the film business purely by accident in an article in the LA Times that came out after 9-11 in 2001. And it was an article about the gentrification of former industrial buildings. Karen and I had rented a loft for six years before we bought the building from 94 to 2000. And finally, the pin dropped as to why are we paying two people's mortgages? We were renting a warehouse in the garment district and renting a loft in the arts district. And finally, we decided, hey, we should own our own building. <laughs> you know, so we acquired this uh, 1902 two-story, 26,000-square-foot brick building. And the point to this story is at the time, the neighborhood, which has now become gentrified and hipstified, Back then, it was a little bit of a desolate industrial warehouse, somewhat of a no-go area where, you know, you didn't see people living and you were more sort of keen to see homeless people or prostitutes. It was that sort of desolate area, but had great character and soul. And when we were uh, looking to buy the building, a lot of people thought we were crazy. But back to that gut feeling, we knew this was the right move for us. We didn't listen to what other people said. You know, we just sort of went with what felt right for us. We found this great building with a vast amount of character, and we spent 12 months building it out. And literally within six months of finishing it, we got a phone call from a location company asking would we be interested in renting the building uh, for a music video. It never even occurred to us that we could do that. <laughs> so we said, sure, how bad can it be? And uh, 12 years later, we're still in the film business, filming over 100 days a year. Wow. Now, if we hadn't bought this building, we'd have never got into the film location business and would also never have had the space to basically house the three things that we do, the clothing, the filming, and the Porsches, all under one roof in this unique environment. So, you know, we didn't listen to the people that said, we don't think this is a wise move. It seemed to make perfect sense to us. And we like projects. I often talk about you know, designing clothing, restoring buildings and remodeling buildings and reinterpreting uh, early Porsches, they all share that same common bond of it's got an artistic expression of what we're about. And that's the great thing about Porsche is, you know, Porsche's got its own Porsche exclusive department where, you know, if uh, options on the dealer wish list are not enough for customers and you want something truly unique, you go to the Porsche exclusive department. So in a sense, I'm not really doing anything different except... I'm personalizing these 40, 50-year-old Porsches to my own individual taste. Now, yet again, I've never asked people's opinions on what they think I should do to my cars. I've acquired over 50 Porsches in the past 25 years and never done a PPI on one of them. I've never asked anyone's opinion on what do they think. And the Porsche world's a, a big world in one sense, but it's also a small world on the other sense. And these Porsche purists, and those are the guys that, you know, possibly, uh, you know, oversweat the correct shade of cat plate. And then there's, then there's the Porsche Outlaw guys that have been around forever from the James Dean 356 days all the way to today, you know, are all about sort of hot rodding and upgrading and not really worrying too much about what the Porsche purists think. I think the Porsche world is big enough that the two can coexist. But for me, you know, uh, to sort of sum up this long rambling story on how the three things are connected, sure. I was one of those guys that when I built my, what I like to call sport purpose, readable track Porsches, which are obviously inspired by the iconic 911R and the early 70s ST, I never set out to completely emulate something that the Porsche factory had done, i.e. building an exact replica of a 911R or a 911ST or an RS or an RSR. 
And I think those are the things that sort of separated me a little bit from, you know, the hundreds of other people worldwide or thousands of people that are building their own interpretation of their dream Porsche. I just like to sort of do things my own way. And a couple of those touches became somewhat signature touches on the cars that I've built. And we can touch base on that a little bit because I think in uh, some of your notes and flow questions, you've got a couple of uh, ideas or questions on, you know, uh, what a signature builds or whatever. But by taking that sort of leap of faith and doing things a little bit different, that's ultimately, I think, what separated my builds from other people's builds. Obviously, the instantly recognizable as 911s, but it's the little touches and details that have made the cars somewhat identifiable with myself. So that's the common bond between the two thing, the three things we've done over the past 28 years is they're all sort of an expression of our own individual personal style. No, I love that story in so many ways, and it, it leads me to another very important question because entrepreneurs, people who go their own way, make their own decisions, and don't listen to other people many times find all sorts of opportunity, but sometimes they run into obstacles. And one of the things I love to talk about here are career challenges or even breaking points that you've hit that really, really cause you to struggle or even a failure. And I wondered if you could share one of those with our listeners. But the more important part of that story of a failure or a challenge is how you reacted to it and how you overcame it. Can you share one of those with us? Well, being English, you know, I guess I got that tenacious British bulldog spirit where I never give up. So, you know, to me, failure just sort of makes you try harder. I don't necessarily have one particular story of something that failed, you know, starting with the clothing days. It's funny, some things that you work really, really hard on weren't necessarily the best sellers. And then things that sort of came together right at the last minute when the, you know, we we'd do four or five trade shows a year. So we'd know we'd have trade shows at certain periods of time. But we never started designing, my wife and I, you know, we didn't plan that far ahead. We were always sort of seat of the pants last minute. And, you know, we'd have a deadline for a trade show and we'd know four weeks ahead of time and we'd have no ideas. And long story short, we were really sort of in the sweet zone with two, you know, one or two weeks to go when the ideas were really, really flowing. And people would often say to me, and I'll start with a fashion background and then work up to the cars. People would often come to us and say, hey, my daughter really wants to get into fashion design do you think we should send it a you know, fashion school or FIDM or FIT? And I'd always say to these people, you know, you can go to school to learn the basics and maybe the background of the business end of fashion, but you can't really go to school to learn ideas. Ideas can't really be taught. I think you either have the idea or you don't. And serious clothing had its own unique style. People could tell what serious items were, and it was a mixture of doing things yet again a little bit differently. Back then we were using automotive upholstery and car seat fabric and swirl velvet in a uh, basically automotive fabrics used in an apparel context and that right there separated us from the other people so i can't really think of one thing that was an out and out failure that inspired something else obviously sometimes you know things come really easy and sometimes you can overthink things and the you know never work out you know with the recent sort of popularity of my porsche builds i suppose one thing that was just somewhat of a Almost a throwaway item was this louvered deck lid and sort of uh, Frenched in 911R turn signals. You know, even on the factory 911R, which Porsche only made 20 of them, you look at those fiberglass uh, turn signals and they never fit right. And for some reason, that didn't matter to Porsche because they were building a lightweight sports car with a purpose. You know, those those cars now are worth oh, two, three million bucks, but the fit on the fiberglass R turn signals never fit great. And it's funny, people replicate that car and 
they all just sort of bolt on these ill-fitting fiberglass <laughs> turnstiles, yep. just like ill-fitting fiberglass ducktails and uh, bumpers and stuff like that. And my idea was, hey, let's just sort of graft this in and make it a whole cleaner look. In a sense, it was just an easier solution to something that didn't look that good. So that wasn't so much a failure, but it was one of those leap of faith things where, you know, I sort of knew, oh, people are either going to love this or they're going to hate it. And I knew right there that I was on the right track. You know, whenever you sort of think, oh, uh, you know, what are the purists going to think to this? If, you know, if you know it's going to piss them off, to me, I know I'm on the right track. <laughs> right so, pissing off purists is something that I often think about when I get this feeling, oh, this is going to be great. You know, and I build stuff for myself. Like I said, I don't intentionally set out to irritate the purists, but if it, if it sort of gets that reaction one way or the other, this love-hate thing, I think that's a sign that you're doing something right. You know, if you're in the middle, this, you know, the middle ground's sort of wishy-washy, you know. Yeah, a little, too, little bit too trying, safe. Yeah, trying new things. You know, for example, I've got a 67S, which, you know, is the first year of the S, and that's sort of become now a holy grail car. But I've been picking these cars up over the past 10 years, and at one time I had five of them, and only two of them had matching numbers motors. Well, the point of this story is the car that I'm about to sort of debut very, very soon is a 67S that I've built yet another R-inspired, sport-purpose, streetable hot rod car. And this is the follow-up car to my 72 STR, which I think was the car that sort of, that and my first 68R-inspired car that I built probably five years ago, were the two cars that really sort of put me on the map a little bit of, yeah, this is a familiar 911, but wait a minute, it's got some things that are a little bit different. You know, the first short wheelbase 911R I did probably five years ago. I had the louvered deck lid and the integrated turn signals. And those were features that hadn't been done on a 911 before. Then the SDR that I built probably two, three years ago sort of stepped that game up a little bit because it was a wide-bodied interpretation of that car with the reprofiled turbo flares and the three-color paint scheme. And yet again, it was sort of a combination of an RSR and an ST and an R all merged together with these tweaks. So the car I'm talking about now, this 67S, is the follow-up car to those cars. So in a sense, it's a little bit like when a band put an album out that got critically uh, uh, well-received, and then you follow it up with the, you know, the second album. And of course, you know, there's a little bit of pressure because it's got to be better than the one that came before. Sure. You know, for me, I've restored quite a few cars, and each one gets continually better and better. So this is the follow-up to the STR, which was a car that, you know, it got a lot of attention, you know, and uh, it made it to the cover of Road and Track and Total 911, and Tiff Dell drove it, and Jay Leno put it on his garage show, and it, in a short period of time, became a little bit of an iconic car. Well, this is the follow-up to that car, and it's a short wheelbase car, narrow body, so I already know those cars are not quite as attention-getting just because they're not wide-bodied and turbo-looking, so... I'm pretty excited about what's going to debut on this car. And as luck would have it, you know, my stories it's a rambling path. I often say I'm on this journey not knowing where I'm going. And I've never planned anything up to this point. We didn't plan to get into the clothing business. That happened organically. And there's an organic thread that goes through the things along with this artistic sort of style. We accidentally fell into the film location business, but saw that as an opportunity and uh, we took a leap of faith 10 years ago and decided after we landed this Bruce Willis movie where they were in the building for over a month that, hey, I bet if we didn't live here, we could film all the time. So 
10 years ago, we took this leap of faith and moved out of the building and became a full-time film location, shooting over 100 days a year, which allows us the opportunity to do a couple of things. It allowed us the opportunity to sort of increase my Porsche hobby to what I control, the out-of-control state. <laughs> but it also allowed us to do something that was a real leap of faith, go-with-your-gut moment, where two years ago we decided Serious Clothing, which was our baby, the rock and roll wholesale clothing company, that had got us to this point of, you know, almost freedom where we could do whatever we want. Well, over the past two years, two, three years prior to that, We'd sort of no longer been motivated by designing. We'd lost touch a little bit, I guess, because Karen and I were no longer going out to rock and roll shows, and we reached our early 40s, and we got to the point in life where priorities had changed. And um, the point that I'm making here is we sort of lost passion with the clothing design, and we were treading water. Sales started dwindling, and our interest dwindled because we always said we don't ever make what we like to wear. We don't follow trends. We sort of... Uh, more follow what feels right to us, and we ended up becoming trendsetters. So two years ago, we decided, okay, success to us really means the freedom to do whatever it is you want to do. And we thought about this for a year before that point. But timing's everything, and timing's something that you can't sort of predict. You can't necessarily teach it. You can't necessarily plan for it, but you can sort of feel when the timing's right. So we took this leap of faith and decided, okay, we're at the point where the Film location business is doing pretty well, and we don't have to make a product. We just basically maintain the property and book these somewhat lucrative film days. And I'm talking about commercial filming, everything from low budget to big budget to TV shows to music videos to commercials mm -hmm. and reality shows. But what we decided to do was let's stop serious clothing. And this was our baby. You know, it, was, it wasn't like we sold the company. We just decided, oh, and we're going to basically close the company down you know, we had a couple of employees that had sort of moved on to other things, and it was sort of like a one-man operation at this point. So we knew this was the time to say, okay, we're done with serious clothing. We're going to put it on the shelf and hang it up for a little bit. And we didn't really know what was coming next. We had no idea, but we knew we sort of had this little bit of a financial cushion from the film business to say, okay, we'll just throw caution in the wind and see what happens. Well, within a couple of months of that, I got a phone call from this crazy Canadian bureau called Tamir Moscovici. And he's a uh, Porsche head and also a commercial film director. And he'd seen my rambling Porsche collection out of control hobby post on Pelican Parts. And <laughs> prior to this, probably three years ago, I was starting to get a little bit of editorial coverage in mostly all European magazines. Total 911 was one. Mm -hmm. And they picked up on my sort of outlaw builds and liked the story and to me, being a filmmaker, sort of realized there was more to my story than I'd told and shared, and he wanted to interpret in his own way. So a couple of phone conversations and an online sort of handshake, and Tamir took his leap of faith and flew down to L.A. in February of, I guess, 2012, filmed for four days, hired a talented but ramshackle crew here in L.A., and for us, we had no idea what was going to happen, but we knew, hey, Something cool could come of this, or the worst-case scenario is we're going to get some pretty cool footage that will go on the website or whatever, yeah. or the blog, because at that time I didn't even have a blog. Well, little did we know what Urban Outlaw would become, but we shot over four days in February of 2012. Mm -hmm. And he released a little three-minute trailer to me in June of that year, which ironically got picked up by Top Gear on the first day. and sort of went viral that three-minute trailer 
got viewed by several million people and got <laughs> yep. blogged all over the world. And I was one of them. <laughs> at this stage, I didn't even own an iPhone and wasn't on Facebook, but thought, okay, you know, got to set up a little Facebook page and finally decided to give up my Motorola flip phone and <laughs> drink the Kool-Aid and get an iPhone because it seemed like people were interested in what was going on. Yeah. And then that film uh, got into the um, Raindance Film Festival in September in London. That's the rainy version of Sundance. And we released it online for free in October 15th of 2012. So barely two years ago, we're almost coming up for the two-year anniversary of the film, which I should look at a calendar because it uh, looks like that's going to be on Wednesday. It's the two-year anniversary. So you're hey. celebrating your 100th <laughs> episode of uh you know yeah of course Cars, yeah. yeah yeah and we're about to come up for the two-year anniversary of urban outlaw very cool urban very outlaw cool. sort of became this pivotal point because we didn't know whether 500 people were going to see it 5,000 people or what we really didn't know but because that trailer had been viewed so many times there was quite a lot of anticipation for when the film came out well the film came out almost two years ago to the day within two weeks we got a phone call from the producer at the jay leno show saying hey Jay loved Urban Outlaw and wanted to invite you down to be on the Jay Leno Garage Show. And, of course, we were like, sure, you know, we can be there on Saturday. And I think we got the phone call on a Tuesday. And four days later, we're on the Jay Leno Garage Show. And <laughs> the past two years have sort of been a whirlwind of, I've probably done, in all honesty, three dozen videos and TV appearances on, you know, shows from Top Gear to Jay Leno's Garage to Fifth Gear and seems every European country's got their own version of Top Gear, and I've probably done, I don't know, 40 or 50. I've lost count of the magazine interviews. And point to my story is my life's not really changed. The difference is, though, over the past two years is more people sort of seem to have connected with my story and seem to be interested in what I'm doing. And those are sort of the great things that came unexpectedly out of the film Urban Outlaw, you know, was obviously people connected with the cars, but more importantly, people connected to the story of, never given up on your dream and that's the recurring theme of i still get lots and lots of emails separate of the car ones from people that found that my story inspiring yeah. you know from girlfriends and wives who realize hey my boyfriend or husband's not the only crazy car guy out there <laughs> and that's the common bond that i spoke about earlier on it doesn't matter whether you're a porsche guy or a guy building a hot rod vw or a guy into 40s or 50s or 60s or 70s cars all car guys share that same crazy passion for the car. It's the thing that wakes you up in the morning or wakes you up at 3 a.m. to go on eBay or whatever it may be. It's that desire of the chase, the initial sort of love affair with the car to the chase, to the acquisition, and then obviously the project whenever that begins and then culminating in the final drive. And, of course, the final drive is sort of the sweetest moment of the whole process. But that's the common bond that all car guys share and I think that was a connection with the film. We hadn't planned that. It's a story a lot of people have. It's a familiar story. I wasn't born into a car culture family. My dad wasn't a car guy. We weren't wealthy. We didn't have access to cars. But that's a common bond with everybody. Everyone shares that same story and that same desire to sort of, whether it's a car you grew up as a kid dreaming about or the car you're listening after today, that is a common bond that all car guys share. I think Tamir was able to capture that spirit throughout the film. You know, like I say, the past two years have just been a whirlwind of... I've lost track of it. I mean, there's so much stuff happening so quick. You know, the current thing is I got approached by Mobile One to put two cars in the upcoming SEMA booth in three weeks' time. 
So there's just these never-ending opportunities that keep happening, doing events with Porsche, Porsche putting me in one of their new commercials. I went to Europe four times this year, three times with Porsche appearing first at the old-timer GP at Essen, then at the, uh, um, I mean, the Essen Techno Classica show, then the old-timer GP at the Nürburgring, and then finally the Goodwood Revival. Now, these were all events that I'd always wanted to go to, but, you know, it's like Pebble Beach. I'd never gone to Pebble Beach until Porsche invited us there last year. Yeah. So these are all these sort of windows of opportunity and uh, doors that have been opened just purely through people relating to that film. But, you know, I think timing's everything. Like I say, the film came out at a great time just before the 50th anniversary of the 9-11 that was celebrated last year. You know, obviously, I'm not your typical Porsche guy, so that made my story a little bit more interesting. And then the cars were just unique and different enough to, you know, continue what I like to call more fuel for the fire. So we didn't plan that. That just happened to evolve around. This year, Porsche's celebrating the 40th anniversary of the Turbo. I've obviously caught a dose of turbo fever where I fell in love with Porsche through the turbo 37 years ago. But until three years ago, I actually hadn't owned an early turbo. I'd driven them, but I actually hadn't owned one. And as I touched base earlier with my Porsche collection, I like to start at the beginning. So my turbo collection obviously was the first generation three liter cars. And, uh, you know, a crazy thing just happened to me where I'd acquired a couple of 60, uh, 76s and a couple of 77s. But I was missing the missing piece to my puzzle, just like the 64 911. You know, Porsche only made 232 cars in 64, and I tenaciously managed to hunt one down and found what appears to be one of 60 uh, cars that are surviving from the first batch oh, wow. of 232. But to make it even more rare, it's one of only three dozen that have the original motor and transmission. Well, fast forward 11 years, I recently acquired the first year of the Porsche Turbo the iconic, legendary car that I think everyone associates with Porsche ultimately is that turbo, the 70s supercar. Yeah. Well, Porsche only made 282 cars, 284 cars, in 1975. And of those 284 turbos, only 15 of them were right-hand drive. So I finally acquired, literally two weeks ago, my first ever right-hand drive car, not just <laughs> right-hand drive Porsche. I never owned a car in England, so yeah. never owned a right-hand drive car full stop, and I acquired one of 1575 Porsche 930 turbos made in 1975. Now, I don't know how many of those cars survived 40 years later. I think maybe half of the 15, because those early turbos were notorious for going off the road backwards into a tree, or mm -hmm. if that didn't happen, they were notorious for getting stolen and parted out, and if they were lucky to survive those first two sort of things, a lot of them got butchered and became race cars and got chopped up. So, like I touched on earlier, trying to find an original 911 is somewhat difficult, and when you try and find an original one from 64 where they only made 232, or an original turbo from 75 where they only made 284, that's sort of a little bit of a hard thing to do, but the great thing about the Porsche world is, like I touched on earlier, it's a language, and it's a worldwide language. Well, I just acquired this 75 turbo that was a, originally an English car that made it to Australia and I recently shipped it from Australia to L.A., so that car's literally gone around the world. Wow. And if you said to me three years ago I'd be buying a car in Australia, I'd say you're crazy. <laughs> but that's just sort of, you know, yeah. the crazy car guys go to to acquire things that mean a lot to them. And, you know, collecting cars is, you know, sort of maintaining history. You know, a lot of these early iconic cars from 64 or the 75 Turbo are not necessarily on the road anymore. 
So in a sense, you know, I'm known for outlawing these cars and hot-rodding these cars and doing these signature touches, but half of my collection is pretty much bone stock original cars in various states of condition. So, you know, I like to preserve these cars. You know, even like joking about that 67S, you know, I'm sort of, to some people, buttering that car, but to me, I'm keeping that car on the road and, you know, allowing that car to sort of go for another 50 years. You know, a lot of these cars, you know, didn't survive for various reasons, but... uh you know, I just enjoy the whole process. So. Well, you've covered so many things here, and you, you really covered a lot of the questions I normally ask just in a, in a real roundabout way, and I really appreciate that. But I've got to ask you this one question because it's really revealing to me about people's personality. And you have a tremendously unique and creative personality in so many different ways. So here I go. If you were a car, I'm talking about you, Magnus. If you were a car, not the favorite car, but you were a car, what would you be and why? Well, that's a great question. I got a simple answer. You know, it's probably an obvious answer. I'd be a Porsche 911. You know, as I stated earlier, I've owned a lot of other cars that are all great personalities and unique styling and potentially good driving cars. But I would be a Porsche because a Porsche is one of those things that just sort of goes on for, you know, it's unique. It's got its own style. It's got character. It's got soul. It's got personality. You know, and I think maybe I'm describing myself there in a way of, yeah. you know, I'm my own person. I've never followed trends, whether it comes to fashion, hairstyles, what people think, what cars people should drive. You know, I was sort of a little bit ahead of the curve when it came to getting some of these cars, which which are now popular but weren't popular before so i like to see myself as a porsche you know it's a reliable dependable great all-around performance car you know it's a, it's a fast car it can it's a car that's alive i often say porsche to me represents you know separate of the language it's the five senses you know you see you know first of all you see the car so sight then you touch the car you feel it you get in it then you turn that key you know the key's always on the left side you hear it then you then this strange thing happens. You smell the car and you become one with the car. You know these are I'm talking about the old Porsches. You know new Porsches are a little bit different in the sense that they don't have as much of that DNA that's been there for 50 years and the the prior owners. And I often describe myself as an old soul. You know I've talked about it before. I like old things, vintage cars, vintage watches, vintage guitars. You know and I like old Porsches. You know like I say they cover the five senses and it's a sensory overload and Every time I get behind the wheel of a early Porsche or any Porsche, but my sort of Porsche of choice is, you know, late 60s, early 70s. But yeah. even the new cars today, they still represent the freedom when you get out there on the open road. And I've said it before, I'm on this journey. I don't know where I'm going. Nothing's planned, nothing's scripted. But to answer your question, I'd be a Porsche because that's going to take me on the journey. That journey started as a 10-year-old. I'm still on that journey almost 40 years later. And what better companion to go on life's open road than in a Porsche 911. So. <laughs> Absolutely. Long answer to your question is... I'm trying to figure that's what I hear. I have a feeling, though, that Porsche would be a little bit outlawed, huh? <laughs> yeah, well, you know, that's uh, that's my drug of choice, the car that I'm most familiar with and, you know, most comfortable in. It's the car that I call my flat-foot car. Having owned over 59 11s, no two ever do the same thing the same way. My uh, ideal car is my 71 911T. It's the second Porsche I ever owned. It's a Porsche I've done all my track days in, you know, my club racing with the Porsche Owners Club. The one I've sort of done all my adventurous, spirited driving, and it's the car I'm most associated with. And for some of its parts, it's a 42-year-old car, which on paper is nothing special, but it's 
it's the memories, the memorable moments behind the wheel of that car that make that car special. You know, and obviously other people have probably got their drug of choice or their car of choice, but for me it's a Porsche 911, and my favorite car is my 1971 911T, the car referred to as 277, because it just covers all those senses and it's got all those memories in it, and it's funny, you know, I sort of built that car up over the past, well, I bought it in 1999, so I've owned it 15 years, and it's funny, recently a lot of people have approached me wanting to almost endorse that car, you know, it's got an old Sparco race seat that's been in it for 12 years, and, you know, I've raced everywhere from Thunder Hill to Laguna Seca to obviously Willow Springs and uh, California Speedway, Phoenix, Las Vegas Motor Speedway, and the model to this point is Sparco wanted to give me a new race seat, and I said, you know, Thank you, but no thanks. Why would I want a new seat when that <laughs> old one has got all the character and soul right. and sweat and energy and memories? Yeah. You know, yeah. and that's the great thing about these cars. It's, it's like when I build a car, I've said it before, you can't build personality into it. The cars come out restored and they're all shiny and new, but it takes time to develop that character. You know, and that's something that just can't be built. It's a little bit like passion. You know, you can't build passion and bottle it and sell it as a commodity. You're sort of either a passionate guy or you're not a passionate person. And, uh, you know, ultimately for me, I like to do things that I feel good about. And I've been fortunate, I think, taking that leap of faith almost 30 years ago and coming to America, that really represented me the freedom to do whatever I wanted to do. Growing yeah. up as a kid in England, England's a little bit different. It's a, or was, maybe it still is a a harder place, you know, people sort of judge you a little bit more on the way you talk, the way you look, and where you come from. America and L.A. especially is not that, you know. L.A. is the land of opportunity because there's so much here, entertainment, music, film, aerospace, automotive. So, you know, building cars and getting people to do intricate things, you know, it's relatively straightforward. I mean, you still got to be focused and motivated. I often tell people, because, you know, now I did that TED Talk, you touched on that recently, and a lot of people relate to that and ask me for advice, and my advice is always the same, you know. Passion, motiv motivation, dedication, and hard work really go a long, long way. Oh, sure. You know, that, that's been my story. I'm not book smart, I'm street smart, but <laughs> I go back to that. If it feels right, do it, and do it to the best of your ability. And I always say, if I'm in something, I'm in it all the way. I'm in it 11 tenths of the way or... If I'm not, you know, there's no point doing it. So you've got to be fully committed. You talked about pa uh, patina and, and uh, a soul and things. Do you think that's why the preservation class of car shows these days has become so important to people? It used to be just the shiniest, best-preserved car, but now even on the lawn at Pebble Beach, you see cars that came out of a barn, maybe got a little bit wiped down. Do you think that's why? Because they still have that. You're only original once. Well, I think that main, only original once is the saying, you know, Freshly restored shiny cars, you know, that's one thing. You know, it takes a lot of time, energy, talent, and money, but it's not original. You know, I mean, finding something original that hasn't been molested too much is a real rarity. In a sense, I think that's one thing that everyone that collects anything, whether it's guitars, watches, or cars, you're sort of preserving history. So these preservation barn find class cars are sort of unique in the sense, you know, that they haven't been torn down to bare metal and replaced. And, you know, a lot of these, you know, I often joke, I started with my dirt don't slow you down thing, you know. It's, I'm not a big fan of over-restored cars because, like I say, it's, it's an old car that's brand new, so where is the soul and character there? I'd much rather have a 
old car that was a little bit more abused and worn down and broken in. I describe that all the time as my favorite cars remind me of my favorite broken, incomfortable, beat-up shoes or favorite pair of jeans. Mm -hmm. You know, only original once is true, and that goes a long, long way. And I think it's that real sense of history that people are now drawn to of, well, this is maybe how it left the factory, however many years ago that was, as opposed to here's a car that just spent quite a long time getting restored. There's a different personality there. Oh, absolutely. I think think soul, character, patina, personalities. It's a commodity that's, you know, it's something that's not around really anymore. You know, it's always been, you know, one as great as America is in a sense, it's a little bit of a throwaway society of people who throw things away and always try and build something shiny and bigger and better and new. But I think that trend towards originality is, always been there to a vast amount of people but i think now it's just gaining this you know uh standard uh, hey pebble beach has got a preservation class and uh, i think it's a great thing i do too i do too we're having a great time here and as we get towards the end of this discussion and i'm, I'm so appreciative for you being a part of this uh, hundredth show anniversary for yeah, me. Yeah, it's a milestone moment. It, I, I got to congratulate you one more time. <laughs> well, anyway. I appreciate that. And in being a racer, I always call this last part of our talk the checkered flag. And you know what that means. The flag's out, the pedal's to the metal to use one of your quotes. And, and this last question I always enjoy asking people, especially people who have large collections of cars like you do, because sometimes it can be kind of hard to answer, but we'll see what you have to say. If you could only have one collector car in your garage... And it's something you can't sell to buy a bunch of other cars with. But money's no object. So today, Magnus, I'm the banker, and I'm going to give you whatever you want. What would that one vehicle be, and why would you choose it? Is it a vehicle I already have, or is it a vehicle I can just go get? Uh, It depends. It's whatever you want. Some people have chose a car they already have, and other people have this this uh, iconic dream car on their list that they wish they could have and they're not sure they ever could. So it's whatever you want. Uh, more importantly, though, I want to know what that is, of course, but why? I think I've already answered that question earlier on, but I'll, I'll answer the question officially. Okay. It'll be my 1971 911T, car number 277. <laughs> I thought you'd say that. The second Porsche I ever owned. Ironically, it was the fourth car I ever owned. We never talked about my early non-sort of sports cars. First car I ever bought was a 1977 Toyota Corolla uh, TC. Paid 200 bucks for that, probably in 87. <laughs> Second car I bought was, a, it's funny, I just saw one yesterday when I was driving back from Angeles Crest Highway. It was a 1988 Saab SPG Turbo. Oh, wow. I thought, you know what, that's sort of a, I really like that car. And I saw, first time I'd seen it on the road for probably 10 years. That was the second car I ever bought. Third car I ever bought was uh, my 74 911 that I bought in 1992. But to answer your question, no holes barred would have to be car number 277. Because <laughs> it's the car that I'd uh, learned to sort of drive in. You know, I took my aggressive street driving to the racetrack in 2002 and went through the Porsche Owner Club uh, driving program where I got a uh, short track license within a couple of months and time trial license and then fast track to within two years of doing my first track day i was club racing doing wheel-to-wheel racing and for the next five six years probably did 40 50 track days in car number 277 mm-hmm. had a lot of fun instructing in that car and you know i touched on it earlier but it's the car that you know just represents everything that's great about porsche it's not restored it's got character it's got patina it's constantly sort of being developed it's on its fourth engine it, ticks all the bases of what's great about Porsche and things I've talked about of being 
sort of the everyman affordable, practical, reliable car. It's interchangeable. It's upgradable. It's when I bought it, I bought it at the Pomona Swap Meet in 1999. I paid 7,500 bucks for it, and within the first few months, I'd sort of built a 73 RS Carrera replica out of that car. I saw some real genuine 73 RS Carrera flares at the Pomona Swap Meet within six months of that, and the car was looking like a 73 Carrera, so that sort of ticked the base of, uh, you know, upgrading or hot rodding, and then it just evolved into my favorite thing. You know, it's, I call it my flat foot car. It's only got a, on a good day, maybe 210, 220 horsepower. So it's a momentum car by today's standards. It's, you know, it doesn't have uh, all the latest, greatest suspension components. It's got a lot of stuff that was done 10 years ago. But it's funny, of all the cars that I've built, there's just something about that car that I'm really connected to. It's, like I say, it's not the best build. It doesn't have the best things on it. It's, Got a, uh, I've never built a motor for that car. I've always sort of looked into finding these used motors. It's currently running a short-stroke 2.6 uh, twin-plug motor built on a early 66 aluminum case with a 66-millimeter crank and 92-millimeter piston. So it's, it's a Frankenstein car. And that, like I keep going back to, is the great thing about Porsche. And it's the great thing about what makes that car special to me. It's not the sum of its parts. It's... All my Porsche moments have been done in that car, all the memorable <laughs> moments, the journeys, you know. I had that car last year out in uh, North Carolina for the uh, North Carolina Museum of Art Porsche by Design Seducing Speed Exhibit. You know, over the past two years, we became friends with the Ingrams, and uh, I had that car at VIR on a track day, and then 277 was shipped directly from North Carolina, having spent a week there and shot my Southern Charm and Hospitality video was shipped up to Canada, up to Toronto by a, a Porsche center in Oakville who wanted the car there for its premier opening of this new mega 60,000 square foot Porsche dealership in Toronto. They flew us up there to appear with the car. I mean, the car's got to the point where the toy company Shuko is just about to release a 143rd scale model of that car, oh, limited wow. from 1,000 pieces. So no question, that's the car I would keep because, you know, it's got... <laughs> everything I just described. But to sum it up, it's got a lot of character, soul, memories, and personality. So. Oh, absolutely. And that's the type of thing that you can't build that, you can't predict that. It just evolves and becomes this thing, you yeah. know? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Hey, let our listeners know, what is the best way they can find you, learn more about what you're doing, your business? I'm pretty easy to find. I've got a blog that's literally magnuswalker911.com. I'm also on Facebook and Instagram, pretty much under Magnus Walker 911. And, you know, I'm regularly posting things on Instagram and Facebook. And I like to engage people. Currently, I've got this little thing going on Instagram where I started in 64. And every day or twice a day, I'm posting, uh, you know, a chronological order of the cars I've owned, sort of a Porsche history lesson. Mm -hmm. Today, I got up to 1974. So each each post is the evolution of the cars that I've owned and this natural lineage progression of Porsche and I like to sort of engage people and do things in somewhat of an informative but humorous way and I'm always making videos I love to get out there and drive that's my main thing so I got a new video coming out on my 78 SCHR that's going to debut just before SEMA as I say I'm going to have a couple of cars at the mobile one booth at SEMA and the rest of it time will tell where 2015 goes you know I think there's a more great stuff to come. There seems to be more opportunities that are getting presented uh, to me, to, you know, to me. And now I'm just sort of 
picking and choosing uh, what I want to do next. So I'm continuing to build cars. I'm really excited about this 67S, the follow-up to the SDR car, and uh, hopefully people will continue to uh, enjoy what I do and follow along and support and give me encouragement. And uh, So I'm easy to get a hold of. MagnusPorsche at gmail.com is my email, or MagnusWalker911.com if you want to follow the blog. Or if you're a Facebook and Instagram fan, I can be found there as well. So I'm easy to get a hold of. Oh, sure. And I'll remind our listeners that uh, if you go to carsyeah.com slash Magnus Walker, you can find links to everything that he shared here with us today. Magnus, you've taken us on a tremendous ride. I have just been uh, so honored, and, and it's been so much fun to talk to you here on this uh, 100th episode of Cars Yeah. And I want to thank you for sharing your amazing journey. It is so much fun and inspiring for entrepreneurs to listen to this path you've gone down and how you've just constantly pivoted and moved and and gone where the next opportunity is could you give our listeners one parting piece of guidance before you drive off into the sunset in that Porsche 911 well first of all i want to thank everybody out there for the continued support you know it really is uh it's good to know that you're sort of connected and uh, inspired and uh, supportive of what i'm doing and you know, my advice that I give to people is really always follow your gut, you know, do what you're passionate about, you know, try and find something that you really like to do and do it to the best of your ability. But more importantly, never, ever give up, you know, just if it's something you want to do, find a way to achieve it. And generally that way is found, or from my experience, is found by ultimately you've got to put all the hard work in. But if it's something you love doing, it's really not hard work, whether, you know, there's obviously ups and downs and frustrations and some things work out better than others. But also what worked for me was always, uh, never really being too rigid and too structured that you sort of boxed in and afraid to take a risk. You know, you only sort of, from my experience, move forward by taking these sometimes gambles, sometimes calculated gambles. Naturally, a little bit of luck always helps. But ultimately, I think you make your own uh, future, you make your own freedom, and that's sort of done by always sort of doing what you love to do, being passionate, motivated, and dedicated about it. And uh, I'm one of those guys that I'm never afraid to ask for help if I sort of run into a stumbling block. You know, I'm always asking for help. You know, obviously I didn't get to where I am today by doing it all on myself. I have people that help me on a freelance basis. But, you know, I'm always supportive to other people and try to find time and give back. And I try to get back to everyone that emails me. Obviously I can't always do that, but... I'm a big believer in what goes around comes around. You know, life's been pretty good to me, but like I said, I took a gamble and followed that leap of faith, gut feeling, and just stayed motivated and grounded. And I think to this day, I'm no different than I was before. You know, I've still got long hair and still not taking no for an answer and still sort of trying to do things my own way and try to constantly evolve and uh, fine-tune and stay motivated. That's the main thing, just stay motivated. But sometimes, you know... I just haven't given up, so I think persistence goes a long, long way. Oh, absolutely. You have so many golden nuggets there for entrepreneurs and to inspire them. Uh, it's fantastic. And and I want to thank you for being so generous with your time. You know, I reached out to you. You reached back to me and, and gave some time back to me in this new journey that I'm beginning here with Cars Yeah. This, I took my passion for cars and I'm trying to create something that inspires other people to follow their dreams, and that's exactly what you've done. So, Thank you so much for your time today, your expertise, and sharing my pleasure. your experiences. My pleasure. Yeah, it To you and all the listeners at Cars, yeah, you know, I, I have one final uh, parting comment. And, uh, yeah. 
get out and drive, pedal to the metal, fast and smooth. All right. Well, that is a great, great piece of inspiration. And Magnus, I appreciate your time. And until we talk again, I'll see you down the road. I'll see you down the road, Mark, and uh, get out and drive, like I say, pedal to the metal, fast and smooth. I'm going to get my turbo and do that tomorrow. <laughs> turbo fever forever. All, All right, right, man. Appreciate the opportunity. It's been fun. Thank and, you. Uh, see you next time around. Thank you so much for joining us on today's ride here at Cars Yeah. Drive on over to CarsYeah.com to find show notes and inspiring automotive fun. Download your free copy of Filler Up, a fun book filled with gorgeous photographs of fuel filler fun, including quotes from more inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Download your copy today, and we'll see you next time on Cars Yeah.